Christ's messages to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 3. And we've come to the last of those seven messages, which is the message of Jesus Christ to the church in Laodicea, a church that was lacking in faith, hope, and love. And I can't think of anything that would be more repulsive to the Lord than a Christless church. And that's sadly what we have here in the church of Laodicea at the end of the first century. And sadly, that is the state of many churches yet today, many who will gather together in the name of Jesus Christ, and yet they are lacking the faith of Jesus Christ, the hope in Jesus Christ's second coming, and the love that flows from an understanding and appreciation of God's love for us. A Christless church is the ugliest thing because it is the greatest contradiction The church is the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That is our high and holy calling. And so each one of us must examine ourselves as we come to church and look into our hearts and say, how is my faith? How is my hope? How is my love? Is it growing and increasing so that Jesus Christ is truly manifest in the world, in the congregation that I come and am a part of. Each one of you is that key central part for the body of Christ is made up of individuals and that is what you are, an individual in the body of Christ. Now this week I was scrolling through social media and I found out that a former Christian artist, a former Christian named Michael Gunger, whose music I used to really enjoy, He's apostatized recently, and so this week he rewrote the words for Amazing Grace, and he gave it the title that you see down here at the bottom of his post, not of the poem, A Wretch Like Me, No Thanks. So here you see John Newton's classic lyrics for the probably most well-known and beloved Christian hymn, Amazing Grace, and it starts off, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And when I saw this, I couldn't help but think of the words of Jesus Christ to the church in Laodicea, that you don't know, O church, that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. And this wretchedness that John Newton came to understand about himself was what led him to understand the amazing grace of God, that God would show such amazing grace to a wretch like me. Well, Michael Gunger, after he's left the faith, has decided that he doesn't want to think of himself as a wretch. No, thank you. And so he decided that he would improve upon the lyrics of John Newton's hymn. And he wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound of love that sets us free. Well, isn't that a positive and encouraging message? The love that sets us free. That which seemed lost has now been found, and grace is all I see. He doesn't see the wrath of God. He doesn't see the sinfulness of man. He doesn't see the coming judgment. He doesn't see the fires of hell. He doesn't see many of the things that are in the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Instead, all that he sees is grace. Taking out the wretchedness of mankind, taking out the lostness of mankind, he sees we only seemed to be lost. It was just a misperception. And we weren't really lost, we just thought we were lost, and that was the only lostness we needed cure of, was recognizing that we were never lost to begin with. And it was grace that saw my heart in fear, 
Instead of grace teaching the heart to fear, to fear God, to fear his judgment, to fear final condemnation, no, grace instead saw that the heart was in fear and relieved those fears before For Michael Gunger does not believe in judgment. He does not believe in condemnation. He does not believe in a God of wrath. And therefore, the heart and fear just had to have that fears relieved. There's no cause for fear of God. But instead, we recognize that we already are everything we need to be according to the thinking of this age, this world, apart from Christ. We come to the last line, and you see, though we've been here 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, instead of looking forward to heaven, instead of having that hope, instead he focuses just on here and now. We've been here, not talking about there, talking about here. And we're already bright shining as the sun. We're already glorified. We don't have a future glory to look forward to. And we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. So you understand here that this is not a new form of apostasy, but this is exactly the same apostasy that occurred in the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century when the wrath of God was removed from the Bible, when judgment and hell was removed from the churches, and the churches apostatized and went into theological liberalism that only focused on love and grace. Well, love and grace are amazing things, but without understanding your wretchedness, you do not understand grace. Grace is meaningless apart from the doctrine of sin. Only those who are sinners are in need of a Savior. Only those who are sinners are in need of God's mercy. In response to Michael Gunger's rewriting, one lady, Sarah Wilkins, responded on Facebook with these words, When we elevate ourselves, we cheapen and devalue what Christ has done. And we lessen our need of him. My awareness of my own wretchedness is why I want to give my entire life to him. When I thought I was a pretty good person, I didn't love him like I do now. Our love for him won't last long without a remembrance of his love for us. And we know love by this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. One will hardly die for a righteous man, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were his enemies, he loved us. So let us remember the wretchedness of mankind apart from Christ. Back in our text then, Revelation chapter 3. We were looking last week into the lampstand in Laodicea, and we saw that this church, the Christless church, the church without faith, hope, and love, was a lukewarm church, that they were rich in this present age, and yet they were poor spiritually. I'm not going to review all of that, but let's just go ahead and read the text to put it back in our minds. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14, down through verse 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. 
and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we come back to Revelation chapter 3, we left off talking about this church that was rich in the present age and yet poor in the eyes of Jesus Christ. And so I want to talk about the counsel of Jesus Christ to this church. He recognizes their true state. He recognizes that they are wretched, though they do not see it themselves. And he tells them the truth because he is the faithful and true witness, the Amen. And he tells them that they need to buy what cannot be earned. We talked last week about how Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3, is the key passage that is being drawn upon here in Christ's words and also at the end of the book of Revelation, the invitation to come and buy the water of life freely and without cost. But as we look into buying what cannot be earned, there's three things in the text that the Lord Jesus Christ commands the people, counsels the people to buy from him. And the first one is spiritual gold. You see that there in the text? He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Now let's talk about buying from Jesus Christ once more. We spent some time talking about this last week, but one of the things that I wanted to add to that thought was that buying from Christ is done through prayer. If I was to go to another person and say, hey, how can I pray for you? And that person responded back saying, no thanks, I'm good. You would know that that was a person who was blind to their spiritual needs. This is someone who has no idea that they are in great need before God if they don't think that they need prayer. Now, let's take it a little bit closer to home. Look at our own lives, our prayer lives. Are you blind to your spiritual needs and the spiritual needs of your loved ones and those around you that causes you to be prayerless? Do you recognize your spiritual poverty before God on a daily basis and go to him and ask for the things that you need as he taught us to pray? Forgive us our sins as we also forgive all those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And if we go to God and ask for the things that we need, then we can see that we are not spiritually blind, but that we recognize our spiritual needs, we recognize our poverty of spirit, and we're doing what Christ has counseled us to do, to go to him and buy what you can't earn. And you do that through prayer. Prayer drawing upon the mercy of God. Prayer drawing upon the grace of God. That he is a giver and he loves to give. And he is offering to this church, a church that is repulsive to him, a church that has turned their back on him, a church that has left him outside and he comes and he counsels them, come, I've got spiritual wealth, I've got spiritual clothing, I've got spiritual eye ointment and I'll give it to you without cost, but you've got to come and you've got to ask for it. 
So as we look at the spiritual gold, let's take a moment and consider the riches that Christ has to offer to us as Christians. Let's go back to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. The Gospel of Luke has a lot to say on this subject. I've been thinking a lot about Luke and the teaching of Jesus Christ in this book as I've been studying through Revelation 3 and his message to Laodicea. If the church in Laodicea had paid attention to the Gospel of Luke, they'd be in much better shape than we find them as Christ writes to them. And in Luke chapter 16, you look at verse 10, pick up the context there, and it says this, "...one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much." And the one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is in another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So there's a whole parable on the dishonest manager before this. And so we see that in the Gospel of Luke, this is a key teaching element of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the spiritual riches are the true riches. He talks about the unrighteous wealth, the mammon of this world, and that is something that we have to be good stewards of. I'm not a rich man, but I have a little bit of money, and that little bit is in a stewardship that has been given to me by God, and the same for each one of you. Whether you have more or me or less than me doesn't matter. What matters is, what are you doing with what God has given to you, what he has entrusted to you? Are you using it the way that he wants you to use it? Are you serving others? Are you generous? Are you ready to share? Are you selfish? Are you nervous and worried about your money all the time? Is it something that consumes your focus? Well, if you're not good at taking care of the unrighteous wealth, as Christ calls it, the the worldly wealth, then you're not going to be entrusted with the true wealth, the true spiritual riches. Come with me also to Luke chapter 12. I told you it's all over this book. I want to show you another example here in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, verse 13 Someone in the crowd, as Jesus is teaching, speaks up and and makes a request of Jesus, saying, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, we don't know all the details of this man's situation, but he wants Jesus to step in and solve a dispute between him and his brother about the inheritance that his parents have left. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Now this is for everybody. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. There's nothing wrong with money, but there is something wrong with covetousness. That is when you're not satisfied with what you have. That's when you want more than what God has given to you. That's when you're not trusting in God and what he has provided and what he will provide, but instead you're trusting in your wealth and in your ability to gather and steward that wealth for your own blessedness as you think you are able. Beware of this covetousness. Beware of not being satisfied. Beware of wanting what God has not given to you, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, 
The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample good laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God wants you to be rich. He wants you to be rich in everything that he has given to you, and contentment brings great gain. If you are content with what God has given to you, then you are able to richly enjoy and give thanks for everything that God has given to you. But if you are not content with what God has given to you, then you have been robbed by your own sinful desires of enjoying everything God has given to you. Don't allow sin to rob you of all the enjoyment of what God has given you with discontentment with covetousness. And recognize this, that what you really want is to be rich towards God, rich in wisdom and rich in faith. Let's take a look at a couple of these also. Come with me to James chapter 2, verse 5. James chapter 2, verse 5. Back towards Revelation, you go past Paul's letters and you come to the general letters of the Bible after Hebrews, you have James. This is a key theme in James's book as well. And in James chapter 2, verse 5, we are told this. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? What do you need? Do you need a new car? Do you need a bigger house? Do you need a better retirement plan? Do you need disability insurance? What do you need? Well, God knows what your needs are in all of those areas, and he can supply you your needs. But what you need that you often are not aware of, that you often overlook, is more faith. That's what you need. That if you had the faith of a mustard seed, Jesus says, that you could move mountains. And so all of us can look around and see a room full of people with small faith. A room full of people that need more faith. Myself included. If you want to pray for me, pray that I will believe the things that I preach. And that is a great prayer. If you want to pray for your children... You want to pray for your wife, pray for your husband, pray for faith. That's true riches. That's spiritual wealth. It's priceless. Solomon was given the choice to be able to ask God for anything he wanted. And he had enough wisdom to know that what he wanted to ask for was wisdom. And because... He asked for spiritual wealth of wisdom instead of physical wealth. God was pleased. And not only did he give him what he asked for, but he gave him much more. And so if you will be wise, 
and go to God. You will ask him for wisdom. You'll ask him for faith. And you'll beg and plead and knock and keep on seeking and keep on asking until you get it. It's not that God doesn't want you to have it. He just wants to know if you really want it. And if you really want it, he loves to give it. So don't give up. Keep on asking. This is really a passage about prayer. I know you didn't see it in there, but it's there. Now, as we come then to the second part of the spiritual riches that Christ is offering, we come to the spiritual clothing. And just as you have to understand the spiritual poverty that we are in, in order to be able to appreciate the riches of faith and wisdom that God wants to pour out upon us, you also have to understand the wretched, naked condition in which we find ourselves apart from Christ. Come back to Revelation. Notice the way that Christ puts that there in Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, his counseling verse. He says, I counsel you to buy white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Do you know you have shameful nakedness in the eyes of God? What is the shame of our nakedness before God? It's our sinful deeds. It's the guilt that is piled up because of all of our actions against Him, against His wisdom. All of our folly, all of our shame, that's what we are before God, in the eyes of God. He sees it all, He knows it all, there's nothing covered up. Everything is laid open to his eyes. He sees you. He knows your shame. He knows your guilt. But he wants to clothe you. He wants to cover your shame and your guilt and take it away. You know, we all look pretty nice this morning. We're dressed up for Christmas, beautiful dresses, nice shirts, and not a lot of ties, but that's okay. Nice shirts. I'm not wearing a tie. <laughs> Sweaters. You know, we didn't come to church naked today. That would be shameful. You know, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were naked and they weren't ashamed because they were not sinful. But the very first thing that God did for people after they sinned was made a covering, covered up their nakedness. Here, the church in Laodicea is spiritually naked. They don't know it. But Christ knows it. Come with me to the Old Testament. I want to drive this point home a little bit further. Let's talk about the shameful nakedness that we have as sinners. Ezekiel chapter 16. We recently talked about the book of Ezekiel in our Old Testament survey. There are parts of the book of Ezekiel that are rated R. You wouldn't want to make a movie out of it. But it's here for a reason. And God makes his points strongly sometimes. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, I want to pick it up in verse 35. God is speaking to his people Israel. And their idolatry, their worshiping of other gods instead of worshiping the true God, which is still a problem today. We saw it earlier with the changing of the lyrics of Amazing Grace. That is basically a heart of idolatry. Worshiping a God who is not the God of the Bible. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols. 
and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them. Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber, break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. In war, when prisoners of war are taken, taken to the encampment, one of the things that is done to humiliate prisoners is to strip them down naked. This is done throughout history. And this is what God says he's going to do for the idolatrous people. He's going to strip them down naked and let everybody see what they really are. You know, we all put up a front. We all present ourselves because God has given us things by which we can present ourselves. But what are you without your clothing? What are you without your house? What are you without your food? What are you without the medicine that God has given to you? You're poor and wretched and blind and miserable. Take away your food and find out how miserable you're going to become. Look at yourself a hundred years from now. And where's your beauty? It's in dust in the grave. Without God and without the life that comes from Him, you have nothing and you are nothing except shame and disgrace. That's what sin does to us. And people are right to fear death because death is an enemy. And death takes away all that we make as an image of ourselves, as if we were alive, as if we were vibrant, as if we were loving, as if we were righteous and true and faithful. God strips all that away and shows us what we really are. And until you understand that, until you humble yourself before God and you say, I'm a sinner and I deserve the death that is coming and I don't deserve my house and I don't deserve my food and I don't deserve my clothing and I don't deserve my car and I don't deserve my reputation. I don't deserve my honor. I don't deserve my place in society or in this church. Until you recognize that, you're blind. Wake up to reality and buy from Jesus Christ the spiritual clothes that are going to clothe you in his sight. He bought them. He paid for them. You just got to go to him and ask for it. The one who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted by God. The word of God is given to us so that it might afflict the comfortable, and might comfort the afflicted. You've heard that before. The word of God, it afflicts the comfortable, as Jesus Christ afflicts the church at Laodicea. But if they will accept that reproof and rebuke, and believe that he is telling the truth, and stop lying to themselves and deceiving themselves, then he will comfort those in their affliction. That's the truth. 
Turn with me back to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation 16, 15. In the midst of this judgment chapter of the bowls of God's wrath, the final wrath of God being poured out in the world and its terrifying awesomeness, you have in verse 15 the statement that breaks in and it's in parentheses. Behold, Jesus says, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Christ is coming. Do you have your garments on? The wedding garments that he gives out. He sent you the wedding invitation. Come to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Wear these wedding clothes. Keep your garments on and be ready for Jesus Christ coming. This is the spiritual clothing that we're talking about here. Revelation 16, 15, and then uh, also, is that the right verse? Let's check it out. 1 Timothy 6, 18. It's not ringing a bell for me. 1 Timothy 6, 18. We talked about this verse last time, about what the rich in this present age are supposed to do. Not supposed to be haughty, not supposed to think we're better than others, not supposed to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. You know, most of what you have, it's because of the people who came before you. They're the ones who set up for us to succeed. Uh, If I had to go out into the prairie and build a log cabin and have some cows and plant some rows, I'd do pretty poorly. But those people came and they did that and they worked hard and now we, their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, we're blessed. So we have this riches and we shouldn't be haughty. We should be humble and thankful. I didn't choose to be born here. It's just God's grace that I was born here. Don't set your hope on it either. It's uncertain. It can vanish quickly. And verse 18 says that we are to do good, to be rich in good works. So that rich in good works... Uh, that's really, I think, the spiritual gold uh, that is there, but also it goes along with the spiritual clothing because the good works are the clothing in the book of Revelation. There's my connection. I was wondering where my connection was. Let me show it to you. Back in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. In Revelation 7, 9, you've got a great multitude standing before the throne of God, before the Lamb, They're clothed in white robes. See that? The clothing that Christ gives. They have palm branches in their hands, and they're crying out with a loud voice. And you come down to verses 13 and 14. One of the elders says, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The washing of our robes, making them white in the blood of the Lamb, that is initial sanctification. It's when Christ cleanses us and washes us of all the filth and the guilt and the shame of our own deeds, and he gives us a gift of divine righteousness that is from God. And then God continues to clothe us and give us glory by giving us the power and the strength to do good works in his sight. We are saved not by good works, but unto good works. And those good works that you do, they're part of the clothing that you're going to be wearing in heaven as well. And that's also by grace. 
Don't think that you've earned that clothing either. And the power to do good is part of what we ask God for in our prayers, recognizing our wretchedness apart from Christ. All right, but let's finish up here with the spiritual eye salve in verse 3. Or excuse me, not verse 3, but the third one on the list there in chapter 3, verse 18. And to understand the spiritual eye salve, let me just read it once again. Salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. This corresponds with the blindness that he pointed out at the end of verse 17. And I think the best passage for understanding this is back in John chapter 9. Come with me to John chapter 9. Not the gospel of Luke this time, but right after it, the fourth gospel. And John chapter 9 is all about Jesus healing a man who was born blind. The miracles of Jesus Christ teach us something spiritual. The physical blindness of this man corresponds to the spiritual blindness that we are all born with. No one is born with spiritual sight because we're all descendants of sinners. And we're born in sin. That's a spiritual blindness that keeps us from seeing the truth, keeps us from seeing God as he is, gives us the heart of idolaters. And so he passes by, and he sees this man blind from birth, and, and he heals him. And you come down then to chapter 9, verse 6, and it says this. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. I love this because... What is the eye salve that Jesus uses to heal this man's blindness? Well, it's spit from his own mouth and dirt from the ground, and that's the medicine. It's what comes from Jesus Christ's mouth. It's what comes from Jesus Christ when he mixes it together with the earth that he made us from to begin with, and that's how he heals the man's eyes. This powerful spiritual picture there. But then you come to the end of the chapter, and you see the lesson. You see what Jesus Christ wants his disciples and even his enemies to learn from this. So the enemies of Jesus, they're not believing that he healed the man and they're trying to find ways to, to discredit Jesus. And Jesus comes and he finds him after he's been cast out by the ones who are not believing the miracle and not believing him. And Jesus said to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. Isn't that great? He just got his eyes back. And you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. See? He comforts the afflicted, he afflicts the comfortable. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, Jesus' enemies, and they said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. The same Jesus that is speaking here in John chapter 9 is the same resurrected Christ who spoke to the church in Laodicea and said, you say you have need of nothing, but I say that you are blind. And that's why I counsel you to buy from me spiritual 
ISAV. And what are we supposed to do with this message? What are we who sit in church this morning, who have respect for the Word of God, who come to learn from Jesus Christ, what do we do? Well, notice what Jesus says in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. This is a quote from the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, it says that the Lord disciplines every son that he loves. The fact that this kind of preaching, this kind of teaching, is thought to be unloving and is thought to be ungracious shows just how much the spirit of the Laodicean church is present in the American evangelical world today. The fact that anyone who is willing to go and tell people that you're spiritually wretched, you're spiritually poor, you're spiritually blind. People say, oh, no, no, you can't say that, that's unloving. Shows that they have no knowledge of Jesus Christ. Truly, he taught us to love one another. And he taught us to love one another by speaking the truth in love. And so, you come to church and you get beat up by the word of God Because Christ loves you, and he disciplines you, and he chastens you, he wants you to realize his words are true. Will you love Jesus Christ when he reproves you? Will you recognize his love in reproving you? If so, then you can be zealous and repent. So be zealous and and repent. Repentance and zeal go together. Write down 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. In 2 Corinthians 7, you've got teaching about what true repentance looks like, and it also pairs repentance with zeal. You hear what God says, you recognize that it's true, you recognize that you've been doing the opposite of what God says, and so you show zeal. You take action You have an energy and a power that starts moving you in the opposite direction so that you hate sin and you love righteousness and you start doing what God told you to do. What does he tell you to do? Well, he tells you to buy the spiritual goods that he has for you. How do you do that? You do that through prayer in faith. If you don't have zeal for prayer... You probably don't have repentance. If somebody confronts you with your sin and you say, oh yeah, I sinned, I repent. You don't spend time praying. And I'm not talking about 30 seconds. I'm talking about hours. You don't have prayer. You don't have repentance. You're just repenting in the eyes of men. But you got to go into the prayer closet and repent in the eyes of God and beg and plead for grace, for strength, for power, for wisdom, for the spiritual riches that he has to give to you that you have been lacking. Repent and be zealous. That's what Jesus Christ says to each one of us. And then finally, you got to open the door. Ephesians 1.18 is a good one. Write that one down. The other one I just mentioned was 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. But 
We want to talk about Christ's counsel. We've got to buy what can't be earned, and we've got to open the door. You see that there in the text? Your eyes back in the text once again. He says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. What does it mean to open the door to Jesus Christ? Is this talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ? No. Although we will eat with Jesus Christ in the kingdom, are we all going to look forward to his coming so that we are ready for him at his coming? We can be good doormen who are ready to open the door for Jesus Christ when, when he comes. But that's not what he's talking about here. Here he's talking about not the second coming, but the coming that he does to the heart of the individual who repents and believes. The greatest spiritual gift that God has to give to you, even greater than faith, even greater than wisdom, even greater than power to be able to overcome sin and do good, the greatest spiritual blessing that God gives to you is the gift of himself. You know, my kids, they get to enjoy my house, they get to enjoy my food, they get to enjoy the energy that heats the house during winter and cools it off during the summer, and they get all of that for free. Because they're my children and I love them. But the greatest thing that we have at our house isn't a full refrigerator or a car that works. The greatest thing that we have is each other. The love for each other. The time that we spend together. And that's the way it is with our Heavenly Father. He'll give you everything He has, but the greatest thing He has is Himself. And He'll give you Himself. Jesus Christ will come in to your house. He'll live with you. He'll eat with you. He'll talk with you. He will be your friend. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. 1 John 1, 3, as you see on the screen. Let's start in verse 1 to get the context. Awesome opening of this letter. It reads more like a sermon than a letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you want to have fellowship with God? Do you want to have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ? You can. Say, well, I can't see Him. He's not here. He is here. I can see Him. And if you believe, you can see Him also. I have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. He is my brother. He is my friend the dearest friend that I have. And I want that for every one of you. And I don't know that many of you have that. But for anyone who's listening who doesn't have that, this is an invitation. The invitation that Jesus Christ himself gives. That if you hear the words of Jesus Christ, if you hear him knocking at the door, open the door. Invite him in. To everyone who welcomes him, you become a child of God. God. 
You become a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the most exalted position that anyone can have. You might look at me and you think, oh, you're just a country preacher. You're not important. You're not significant. You're right. In this world, I'm not important. I'm not significant. I don't have any followers on Instagram. I don't even have Instagram. But I am a brother of Jesus Christ. I'm a son of God. What could you want more than that? And when he comes, then everyone who is his brother, everyone who is his son, is going to be revealed with him in glory. Why do you spend your money on that which doesn't satisfy? Come, receive the water of life freely without cost. That's what Jesus Christ says. If you have an ear to hear, respond. Let's pray. Father, for every child of God who is here in this house today, we give you thanks for your amazing grace. That though we were lost, we have now been found. That though we were blind, now we can see. We thank you for the amazing grace of taking your enemies and making them not just your friends, but your family. You who are the eternal God, with eternal life, with almighty power, with all wisdom, with all spiritual riches, and the right to everything that you have created. To have you as a father means we have everything. But if we don't have you, we truly have nothing. And it's only a matter of time until that is evident that those who have everything will be seen to have everything, and those who have nothing will be seen to have nothing. And so, Lord God, help us to take this message, message of truth, message of love, to those in the world who are wretched and poor and miserable and blind and naked and don't even know it, and to give them the invitation at this time of year to come and receive the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.